Hello and welcome to episode 94 of the Waters Wavelength Podcast. I am Anthony Malakian, U.S. Editor of Waters, and as always, I am joined by James Rundle, News Editor of Waters. Hello. So, first of all, it's we're recording this on a Thursday. Um, <laughs> I'm a hero because after staying up till 3 o'clock in the morning to watch all the Houston Astros highlights and everything of my beloved Houston Astros win the World Series. Yeah. He came into the office anyway, you know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed after just a couple hours of sleep. Literally every single person has walked into the newsroom today, looked at Tony's desk and done a double take and gone, wow, you look okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is one, like, usually, like, you know, I'll get, like, pretty, like, during the earlier games, you know, I had some nights where I was, you know, pounding them back aggressively. (laughs) But uh, I was like, all right, if they do win the World Series, I want to be clear, I want to be able to remember it and everything like that. So I was actually well-behaved, but then just stayed up just watching uh, ESPN and MLB Network. Your commitment is staggering. I also love the phrase aggressive drinking. (laughs) Aggressively. Some might say it's always aggressive, but who knows. Um, Angry man. (laughs) So we got a couple uh, new stories that we're going to get to in just a second here. Um, Looking at the CME's uh, planned Q4 launch of futures on Bitcoin, and as well as the FFSB put out a report uh, expressing concern about the p- potential proliferation of AI um, mm-hmm. in finance. So we're going to talk about each of those uh, in just a second. Um, we have a couple events come up this week, but if you haven't signed up for them already, you know, you're kind of behind the ball. But go to our events page, check them out. But December 4th, that's our big one that you know you can start preparing for now. Um, Waters USA, um, it's our biggest event of the year. We're going to have a lot of good speakers. We're going to be trying a, uh, a couple new things. One thing that I think that we're potentially going to be trying out is um, having uh, some fintech startups present their wares and then have people kind of vote on what oh, they thought. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, assuming that that all comes off. Um, so, yeah, it, December 4th, uh, Rebecca Powell, Becky Powell, she'll be, uh, if you have questions, I can direct you toward her or some of the other people that will be uh, putting it together. Um, but, yeah, it's our biggest event. Um, we usually have a lot of good speakers from both the buy side and the sell side there. And James, myself, and even Victor Anderson and Wei Shen will be over, as well as Amelia, who's obviously based here in New York. A rare appearance in New York for Victor Anderson, so if you ever want to meet the EIC, now's your chance. Exactly, Thanks. if you're not going to head over to London. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, you can sign up for that now. Again, go to our events page on waterstechnology.com, and you can find all the information that you'll need there on that event and any other upcoming event that we have. So let's move on. Um, what, what are we going to start with first here? CME, you think? I think yeah, the CME thing. It's uh, super interesting. And uh, so what they've done essentially is um, the CME's run a Bitcoin price index for a while now, since I think November last year, where it was a, a daily reference rate price, um, which get calculated at four o'clock. And there's also real time spot index price as well. And that was kind of seen as one of the first real movements into. Um, Legitimizing Bitcoin as a sort of bona fide investable asset, if you will. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> and um, uh, but as regular listeners might know, I've done a bit of work on this this year and um, looking at how digital currencies might get into the mainstream. And one of the real stumbling blocks has been the fact that there is no real regulated derivatives layer around them. So obviously you can trade spot prices on exchange, but you can't hedge and you can't uh, have any kind of real risk management devices associated with it. Um, I think over the summer really culminating what the CME's done now that started to change. You had Ledger X, which was uh, authorised by the CFTC to offer options on Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now the CME's announced that by the end of the year it's going to offer uh, cash settled futures on 
Bitcoin as well, which um, is a huge step forward for Bitcoin in many ways. Not Can you explain why is that a huge step forward? Well, the, uh, as, as I said just now, the, you know, the problem is that you didn't have that kind of market structure in place to hedge or risk manage properly with Bitcoin. But what this is really doing is it's putting instruments that have been typically regarded with caution um, because they're in what are effectively unregulated markets in the digital currency exchanges into an institution like the CME, which is heavily regulated, which has a lot of um, process and market structure and surveillance, I guess, around it as well. Sure. Um, so what this is really doing is it's saying, okay, well, Bitcoin is now ready for prime time, really, if we're going to put it into this regulated market, if the CME is going to stand behind these features and guarantee them and all the rest of it, then, you know, that's a huge step forward. You know, obviously, uh, James has been covering this in detail since he joined um, Waters, and he had that excellent feature. Um, what, was that? what was the headline? Do you remember? Uh, Frontier Finance, I think it Frontier was. Frontier Finance. Uh, yeah, with shaky foundations hinder digital currencies, which the, relates back to what we were just saying. The SS yeah. Asset Management, of course. Um, but, so, it, it, I remember one thing that you'd said that, uh, from, from a market structure perspective, mm -hmm. that... Um, there is a little bit of a problem. For instance, as you wrote in um, this article that we put up this week, but um, exchanges often fulfill multiple roles as venues, custodians, and sometimes brokers. While many do not have security functions in place that are commonly seen in traditional asset classes, such as price bands or circuit breakers, mm -hmm. am I am I wrong in saying that you still have even if this goes forward that that still that that basically still is a problem that needs to be overcome yeah. i mean this is the thing that's come out and not everyone's been sort of universally uh applauding of it um obviously the price of bitcoin shot up to an all-time high of like six thousand four hundred dollars or something a coin when this was announced but there's an interesting article by the guys from themis trading um damn you oh you had that i actually had it printed out <laughs> and i had my next well. points ah screw you jim i know right um i'm ahead of the game actually <laughs> <laughs> But the points they raise are true, is the fact that, okay, fine, the CME is doing um, a reference rate for Bitcoin, but it's still drawn from these exchanges that have these loose structures around them and, uh, you know, that can be potentially problematic. We saw that, if you read my feature, um, it starts with an instance where the price of Ethereum and other digital currency flash crashed from $330 a coin to $0.10 cents over 45 milliseconds or so, yeah. and just wiped everyone out in exchange. Um so, well, yeah, while the CME is doing this, there are serious concerns, I think, about kind of, you know, a lot of the core issues with market structure around Bitcoin, such as, as you've mentioned, the uh, the multiple roles that these exchanges play, the fact that there's no real kind of like prime brokerage function or anything yet in there. Um, some firms are market making prices, DRW is doing it, um, and I think, was it Goldman that announced it was doing a, a digital currency desk the other day? I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't care. Um, and so there's a lot of nascent market structure, but it, just because you're writing futures and you're drawing out contracts on this or options in the case of Ledger X, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that the underlying problems have been fixed in a way. Mm -hmm. um, did that shoot your next point out of the water? <laughs> well, and to the point, so Joe Saluzzi wrote this blog post, and it was, I thought, an interesting take. Now, they are notoriously, you know, when it comes to market structure, I wrote a whole yeah. book on it, they are the loud voice in the room They're when the, it comes the ones to you this. go to for a contrapoint. I know it's the nice squeeze, falling, uh, you know? squeeze HFT in there as well somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, but they do point out that, so it was just a short time ago that um, Brian Durkin, CME president, uh, he told Bloomberg, uh, I really feel that Bitcoin is very nascent right now. Yeah. Um, I really don't see us going forward with a futures contract in the very near future. And then lo and behold, 
they change it. And then the one thing I thought that was interesting I said is, and it, so I'm just going to read this one paragraph from, from what uh, Joe Saluzzi wrote. We think that CME knows that the underlying market for Bitcoin is very suspect. We think they know that the Bitcoin exchanges have been um, a subject to numerous cases of fraud and theft over the past few years. We think they know there is no government regulatory body overseeing the Bitcoin exchanges. We think they know that spoofing and layering could be running rampant on these exchanges. And then to go back to the high frequency trading, you know, they said, uh, CME said that we're doing this because of, you know, customer demand. Well, who are the customers? Joe Saluzzi's challenging here is uh, high frequency traders. And uh, as demand product from exchange exchanges, I'm sorry, large high frequency clients demand a product from the exchanges and exchanges who are for profit public companies comply even if they have their own reservations because they don't want to miss a profit opportunity. Do you think that there is, do you, I mean, we're going to do some more reporting on this, obviously, of course, here, but just in the people you spoke to, do you think that there is some legitimacy to that, or do you think that they are, once again, crying wolf here? No, I don't think so. There's a couple of angles to it, I think. One, they rightly point out that, you know, even though there are reservations, if there's client demands, they're a for-profit company. They're going to produce a product to meet that need, and it's not like they're producing and throwing it into the wild, they're hosting it on their own exchange, therefore they're responsible under CFTC rules for its um, governance and how its, uh, its stability and its safety from manipulation. On the other hand, um, a couple of guys I spoke to, um, which didn't make it into the story because they didn't really want to be quoted on this, um, and these are guys who run hedge funds and asset managers that specialise in digital currencies, even they were all saying, we really didn't expect it this soon. Yeah. Um, and I, mean, I can't say who it was who said that to me, but you know they're talking off the record, but they said you know a lot of stuff that uh, they and I spoke about a few months ago is still the case, and there are still things that need to be put in place, really like intermediary functions and everything else, before um, it becomes a really safe environment. And look, if you just look at the fact that one year ago, on November the 1st, um, the price of Bitcoin was $750. Now it's $6,400 or something, I think, today. Why didn't I invest? Why, why? <laughs> this is the full theory. The Economist had a really good article on it yesterday, which is the fact that, that nothing makes anyone more unhappy than seeing their neighbour get rich suddenly, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. So, and it's what a lot of the guys um, at the SEC hearing a while back were saying, that the problem with Bitcoin is it's expanding at such a rapid rate that people are thinking, Christ, I missed out when it was 700. I better get in while it's six grand before it shoots up to five figures. And you have yeah. all these evangelists with um, somewhat hazy credentials saying, oh, yeah, Bitcoin will be at $25,000. You're know, golden them there hills, man. That's exactly what it is. You know? And also, <laughs> would you like to buy some of these uh, credit default swaps I've written on these banks? <laughs> it's, uh, it's a problem where, as a market, it's so reliant on momentum and in price momentum. So the beginning of Bitcoin started out as a decentralized currency where people could um, have their own form of currency that's free from fiat money, like government-controlled money, right? Mm -hmm. Then it became a form of currency that people were using on a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer basis outside of the original dark web and all that side of it. Now it's become a commodity in itself. So I spoke to Fidelity who um, ran a pilot in the canteen where uh, staff members could use Bitcoin to pay for the sandwich. They found that no one used it because it was appreciating so much in value that, you know, you spend a Bitcoin on a sandwich a day that was three bucks and then suddenly in three months' time you spent $600 on that sandwich. You know? it's just like, um, but the profile of it's changing and, and as I said, the price momentum is so important to it that there's going to come a point where the people who have been in it are going to want to cash out. And when that happens, it will reverse so dramatically that it will crash again. People lose their shirts. 
Uh, then it will rise again, then it will crash again, then it will rise again. This is a problem with things like Bitcoin that aren't backed by central bank guarantees and don't have any real intrinsic value to them. Um, putting them onto an exchange and including them in portfolios, and if you know if this works, then there's a very strong chance the SEC will approve the ETF decision that it's been stalling on for quite a while, seeing what happens. Suddenly these start littering into everyone's various different portfolios because they're SEC approved, they're CFTC approved, they trade on the CME and uh, registered CEF and everything else. When the bubble bursts, and it will burst at some point, it has to. You know, you can't have things sure. that continue appreciating value. The knock-on effects might be quite startling if people think, well, Christ, I need this to diversify my portfolio and look at the returns on that. I mean, my God, why am I not having this in here? Um, it becomes an issue of who has it where and how much they're exposed to it. Yeah. So, yeah. It's going to be an interesting... I mean, again, this, this came about quickly, perhaps more quickly than many had expected. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly we'll see how this progresses, but uh, it, it, and it's a developing story there. But uh, it's definitely interesting to see where this market's going to head and what kind of complexities and challenges going to present. Which brings me to our next subject. Yes. Um, the FSB, the Financial Stability Board, mm-hmm. um, they put out a report expressing concerns about the proliferation of AI in finance. Um, since we're here in the U.S., uh, many of our listeners may be based in the U.S. or in Asia. Um, and might not be as familiar with the FSB. Why don't you tell us a little bit about them? Yes, the FSB is a um, it's a body of of international regulators. Effectively, um, generally, it's governors of the central banks that contribute to it. The current chairman is Mark Carney, who's the governor of the Bank of England. Um, what they do is they look at, uh, as the name suggests, kind of systemic issues around the global markets, and they make recommendations that aren't necessarily binding, but do carry a lot of weight among regulators for how to approach various topics, whether that be monetary policy and fiscal stability, or whether it's um, increasingly actually um, emerging areas such as uh, fintech or artificial intelligence, which is what this report was about. Um, And it's it's quite a lengthy document. It's written in that kind of dry, yet easy to understand FSB style, where it doesn't really say anything until the very end. But um, kind of what they got into uh, was some of the risks or some of the stability and systemic risks that be associated with AI. And actually, looking at it, they seem to be fairly concerned about everyone adopting this. Um, you know, there's a Greenwich report that said, I think three quarters of major banks and financial institutions will be using AI in some form over the next 12 months. Which to me, that just seems. I think that they're already using it. I don't know that they necessarily know how they. I'd be interested. I'll have to read that report because. I think there's things where there's already. Well, they're already there, but I think they're saying there will be active deployment of some kind, essentially, yeah. whether that's in customer service, whether it's in areas that we cover, such as surveillance and risk management yeah. um, or trading, even. Um, so, yeah, the, the FSB raised a number of points, some of which I guess are a bit woolly than others, but you and I spoke to a bunch of people about it. Um, mm-hmm. We got a story up, there'll probably be another longer piece coming out, I guess, over the next couple of months we'll do on it. But, uh, yeah, the FSB was concerned that. Um, I think its chief concern was the fact that. AI is complicated, essentially. It's really hard, and it's uh, <laughs> it's literally the cutting edge of science, and it's very difficult to understand and comprehend. And, you know, how you can comprehend how the machine arrived at a decision is very important, to, and it's very intrinsic to the, the function of technology and, and properly risk managing it. But they're saying that, you know, in a crisis situation, if the machine is arriving at a decision, is the regulator going to have the competency, or, or not even the competency, I guess, just the, the, the possibility of understanding how the machine got to that point and what it's going to do next. Um, so that was the chief systemic concern. 
And there are a number of other areas as well, which I don't know if you want to cover off or if you want me to continue. It's yeah, no, I think that, you know, one of the other interesting things was the models, you know, when you're training these models, you're training them during quiet periods. Um, again, because you don't fully know how these things are going to react mm. in uh, times of market stress, you know, how do you responsibly then allow that into the market? You know, you, so they still have yeah. to kind of figure uh, ways around that because as these models become more complex, which is goes against really what the regulators want. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, the ways that these models then are also interacting are gonna also create uh, challenges there. So that seemed like two of the other think, kind of- Yeah, from the things. people we spoke to, there were kind of two aspects to that, right? There was the um, the, the idea of these models interacting um, either aggressively against each other and reacting unpredictably, but also the fact that there are kind of some various basic schema of AI out there at the moment, and some people are concerned that same people use this because the performance yield is quite quick that they actually might act synchronously and, and destabilize markets in other ways as well. It's a, it was an interesting point, I thought. So. And then um, one of the things that um, Elliot Noma, you know, he's, he's big, he's been working on AI yeah. uh, stuff for a long time, even though he works at a very small shop, but his opinions are very... Smart guy. Uh, he yeah, he, he knows what he's talking about, but so one of the things he had said to us was that uh, this problem could be serious, in, um, so talking about this, um, how the models are trained and everything like that, uh, this problem could be serious since we often don't know what models will do outside of these quiet periods and the boundary location between normal and extreme events are unknown. Um, in addition, the availability of easy-to-use packages such as Psychic uh, uh, and Scikit Learn, I don't even know that one, and TensorFlow is the, uh, the very popular one, mm -hmm. encourage analysts to gravitate toward a common set of models. Uh, these models could act synchronously. Synchronously, Synchronously yeah, yeah. yeah. Once market conditions are outside their trained conditions, and then you create an avalanche effect, essentially. Right. Um, this There's obviously a lot of questions that are going to have to be answered, but these things are already starting to proliferate the market. Now, they are obviously, when you're talking about risk model, risk validation, there are a lot of questions around... Um, the use of machine learning and stuff like that, because people don't want, regulators don't want a black box mm -hmm. for these kind of things. They want to be able to kind of understand how you got to something. You can explain how you trained the system. Um, um, you can you can explain how you went about building it and stuff like that. Some of the um, hypotheses that you built off of. But there's still a lot. It, it would seem to me that there's still a lot of misunderstanding or just lack of knowledge on the regulators part because this isn't an area of expertise for them as yeah. opposed to a hedge fund that's you know hiring the best and the brightest quants you yeah. know left and right so that they're trying to play this game of catch-up and now they're saying but we need to really kind of hold the horses here before we you know open up pandora's box well and i think you can see that in the phrasing of some of the arguments it's very similar to what i remember covering five years ago when uh Algo trading and HFT was all the rage, and the, the same things in here. They're saying, you know, how are algos going to interact with each other in the market? You know, are they going to cause huge sell-offs and you know, peaks and troughs and all that? Or are they going like, to maybe like a system? crash that happens in the flash? Yeah, maybe some kind of thing, uh, which like was pretty right. <laughs> and uh, you know, and they were talking then about how algos are black boxes and how they can't really understand them and that kind of thing. And then you had um, reactionary uh, regulation, like the source code provision and things like that as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think maybe with AI, though, the, the arguments are a bit more valid. I guess it is more complex. There's still algorithms, ultimately, sure. right? But, you know, it's, um, I think, yeah, from the guys that we spoke to, there seems to be a common kind of acceptance of the fact that there is there are some serious question marks about how these get deployed and whether they're done in a safe and secure environment. 
and I guess internal audit as well. Like you know, if you're a risk manager looking at what you're doing in the system, chances are you're not going to be a PhD in, in artificial intelligence yeah, or exactly. anything like that. Um, it's probably hard enough to get your head around the way things are traded now, like anything yeah. else. Um, so in that case, so you're going to have to start hiring data scientists and everything else. Is, and now uh, you're competing with the likes of not only the people you're regulating, but also the likes of Facebook, Google, you right, know, right, whatever exactly, else. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, um, one of the guys at uh, Cyboss is telling me that from Microsoft was saying that the team that works on their AI component for their business is the same size as the team that works on their cloud platform and the team that works on Windows. Yeah. And it's like 6,000 people or something. That should give you an idea of the scale of which like these people operate and the kind of firepower, the intellectual firepower they have. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just how can a regulator like ESMA, for instance, which has a budget of 40 million euros a year, compete with that? It can't, yeah. possibly. No. So, you know, yeah. And then, yeah, and then there's the opposite. You know, it's good that they're putting out these research reports. It's they're, they're following this up after they expressed concerns about fintechs yeah, earlier this year. It was back in July, yeah. It wasn't um, quite as stark as this, but it was uh, It was definitely a case of we, we're concerned about how these things... I guess it was kind of similar. They were saying, take on the surface, it doesn't exactly present a systemic risk, but we, we can't really see how these things correlate with each other and how they interact and how they interplay, and it's the same thing here. Yeah. So there's a lot of stuff that we don't no yes and it's unseen has been done behind closed doors and you know, the rest of it so. and then another worry that people are going to have to worry that we're going to have to consider as we write about this in the future is just that as you mentioned before the source code provision reg at stupid it, yeah. it made no sense um now it doesn't appear that that's going to go forward obviously but still you there is there could be this overreaction um that we're going to see going forward to try and really pull back on innovation um, as we go forward. Yeah. Which is all going to be rendered obsolete, as we keep saying, when quantum computing comes well, in. Quantum computing <laughs> comes out, then we're all screwed. So, yeah. um, and there, no one will be secure anymore um, with their online uh, privacy. Or anything like Show that. me what's the biggest news story of the day. Biggest news story of the day is uh, clearly uh, Tottenham being Real Madrid. No. Yes. Uh, <laughs> as, as Rob McKenzie Smith from Risk came in saying, I never had a worry about it, I always knew it was going to happen. Oh, no. Did always you really, Rob? Yeah, that's, Did you? Uh, um, the Houston Astros winning. We've talked a lot about baseball, so I'll just quickly say. So I've started following this team in the '80s, um, and the one thing about baseball that's different than basketball, hockey, football, is you draft these kids at a young age and then you follow them. If you aren't a team that just buys, you know, mm-hmm. like the the early two thousand Yankees, you know, talking about the early '90s Yankees as opposed to early two thousand Yankees. If you're a team that builds your uh, builds your squad up through the farm system, you know you go through these hundred loss seasons, three straight for the Houston Astros, and but you know they're drafting young talent, and when your team's so, losing sorry, 100, is that, is it as a layman for baseball, is that yeah. from their own kind of their own feeder teams and stuff? Or yeah, they the so they mix. draft kids either out of high school or mm-hmm. out of college or through international signings. It's a little bit of a complex okay. process, but then you have. Um, Rookie ball, low A ball, high A ball, double A ball, triple A ball, and then you get to the major league. So you got to go through a lot of steps just to get to the major league. And you don't have a draft like you do in football, right? You do have a draft, but these kids are 18-year-old kids playing baseball, and you're not going to see them for five, six years. I suppose that's how the Yankees got judged, right? And things like that. Yeah, yeah, or through international and stuff like that. Um, So when you go, teams losing 100 games a season, you know, you're just hoping for promise. So you start following along these kids in the minor leagues. Jose Altuve, Carlos Correa, uh, Georgie Springer, uh, Lance McCullers. So you, you really start becoming invested in them because you want to see them succeed. You want to see them come up to big... And then they come up to the big league club. And the team still sucks because they, they're still growing. 
but you watch them steadily progress. And mm. all of a sudden, you've just followed this kid for, you know, from being, if they're an international sign, some come at 15, 16 years old, they get wow, signed. Really? And so you just slowly watch this progression up until they finally make it to the big leagues. And so you really become invested in them. And it's it's such a better way of, you know, rather than just trying to go out and buy the biggest pieces. The Houston Nationals wouldn't have gotten here without purchasing, without making a trade for Justin Verlander. Mm-hmm. So you, but they had that nucleus of kids that you just love to watch. And then to have a perfect veteran like that come in and tie it all together. It uh, just really made it, you know, much more special. And then the fact that the baseball playoffs are a month long, the World Series is best of seven. This one goes seven games as opposed to a Super Bowl Champions League yeah. final where it's just one game and let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you really are, you know, by the end of it, you're just, I was drained. I'm happy not to watch, have to watch baseball for a while. I mean, and all credit to the Astros, like winning twice away as well at Dodgers, which is yeah. hard for, hard. For so the the yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, I was searching today for the, the Houston article, the one that I was looking for, so what it means to people in Houston. There's a great yeah. New York Times piece on it saying how people were literally, you know, in each other's houses with the walls stripped bare and the carpet's gone and everything, watching it on their radio because they're, te- sorry, listening to it on the radio because their televisions were destroyed and that yep. kind of thing. And what it really means for, like, Houston as a as a city as well after what happened during Harvey. Um, yeah. You know, and I think anybody with... Uh, Anybody with half a heart had to be rooting for the Astros to win this one, right? That's, yeah, well, yeah. it's funny because actually, <laughs> so I was at a, so I, what I've been doing during uh, most of uh, the playoffs is listening for about the first five or six innings um, on a radio feed because mm-hmm. um, I like to listen to the Houston guys um, and I don't like to watch the TV because I'm just, just yeah, you know, just kind of just listen to the feed. I don't know, it's more relaxed. I'm smoking a cigar or whatever. Um, but then I go to the bar. So I go to the bar, and it was funny how many L.A. Dodgers fans are wore at this like little dive bar. Oh, yeah, you live in bar. Brooklyn. They knocked out the Yankees. People are going they to knock out, Exactly. Yeah, they knocked yeah, out the Yankees. Yeah. So there are still people who are like, nope, screw oh, yeah. them. My wife, my wife would not watch it. She wouldn't have it on the TV. I literally <laughs> had to go into like this room at the back and just watch it on my phone. Just yeah. it was, uh, you know, she was like, no, they killed the Yankees. I hate them. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there, were, there were so plenty of people that I knew that were rooting hard against them. But, um, you know, but the Yankees are also now they're building their team similar to the Astros. Just, the Astros are part of this money ball revolution of using advanced analytics to rather than just bend high on the best player to figure out young talent and then to build around that young talent. But what happens when everyone uses the same models and they start acting synchronously? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It all comes back together on AI and it. we got to worry about that. Get Elliot to... in, sort out the Astros. Yep. It'd be good. <laughs> anyway, um, congratulations. It's a hell of an achievement, I think. For absolutely. So, it was awesome. Yeah. Um, one more thing, I meant to mention at the top of the hour, um, InfoPro. We are now, we're yes. no longer incisive media. Mm-hmm. We are InfoPro Digital is our well, parent company. So a proper accent. InfoPro <laughs> Digital. Um, <laughs> uh, so we, they're now our parent company and our email addresses as a result for risk, Waters, uh, FX Week, Central Banking. Post as well, I think. Um, yeah. I'm sure some others may be in there that we're not as familiar with. Uh, our handle now is our first dot last name at infopro-digital.com. It's stupid email address. Just, I mean, yeah. my, my address now is like 30 uh, characters long. Um, but that's where we are. Some people, I think, are still migrating. Mm-hmm. I think that we on Waters are, everybody should be on the Info Pro. I think we're fully, maybe Wei Shen isn't 
Wei Shen had maybe Wei Shen hasn't moved over yet, but they're, so they're slowly rolling this out just to make sure there aren't any glitches. I mean, our unsliced media addresses will still work until April. But, yes, you know, so. um, but it's good just to be aware that uh, we are switching over our email addresses. So if you do try and contact us, um, especially just James, myself, Mia here in the U.S., I can guarantee that um, we're all at on the at infopro uh, digital.com uh, yeah. handle. All right, uh, that's about everything. Waters USA, December 4th. Um, got the BST Awards coming up. Uh, the the luncheon's going to be in. It's a great event. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of drinking there. You Brits. Brits just love to drink during the afternoon. Um, I mean, I love to drink during the afternoon. We also host our events on Fridays rather than Mondays, yeah, that's, which that, the that after helps. is. So, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that's coming up next week. Uh, so if you're over there in London, uh, say hi to uh, Victor Aglos and John. It's happening us. tomorrow. Actually. Is it? Yeah. Oh, it's happening tomorrow. What the hell do I know? (laughs) We'll say hi to him anyway. Um, That's all I got. You? Uh, That's it for me, other than the fact that if you want to talk any more about the new stories we cover in this episode, then feel free to get in touch. We're going to be covering continuously, so happy to hear from you. Absolutely. All right, well, thank you, and we will see you next week.